Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May the 4th from a sunny San Francisco in California, just on the edge, on the very edge of Silicon Valley. Uh, lots of shows we've had recently about all the troubles in Silicon Valley, from Facebook to Twitter, of course. All is not well with many of the larger companies. Even Apple seems to be having some problems. Elon Musk uh, today slamming Apple's app store fees, 30% tax on the internet. Only Musk can put it in those terms. I'm not sure if uh, he... I think he understands that uh, you have to make a living somewhere. So a 30% tax on the internet is 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 highly muskian, but um, Apple is not quite the darling it once was on the internet. It's not even the darling of its workers. Apparently, after returning to the office, many Apple workers are unhappy and ready to quit. Again, not unlike many other companies, but then Apple wasn't supposed to be like other companies. And meanwhile, apparently... The technocrats, in the form of uh, Tim Cook, its current CEO, have triumphed at Apple. That is according, that's a, a New York Times piece, and it's adapted from a really intriguing new book by Trip Mickle, After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion-Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. Uh, Trip is the new Apple correspondent at the New York Times. I'm not sure if the book's going to win him a lot of fans at Apple, but maybe that's not what the book is about. Trip is joining me from just down the road in San Francisco. Uh, Trip, I'm intrigued by the subtitle of your book. Did Apple once have a soul? How do companies have souls? What does that mean? And that's S-O-U-L, not L-E. Correct. Uh, it's a great question and one that I'm sure people could quibble with. I mean, do companies have souls? They're set up to to make money and serve shareholders. So in that sense, no, it's soulless. It's a, it's a company. But in the, in the sense of what Apple aspired to be, especially under Steve Jobs, it, it was kind of a, a creative nirvana, a place that dreamed up new products and revolutionary devices. And the subtitle is a literal, literal reference to the spiritual partner that Steve Jobs worked with to dream up many of those products. Uh, a, a British designer named Johnny Ive, whose imprint on the world is, is around all of us. And in any, any product you see that it has kind of minimalist sensibilities, and those are everywhere. Um, and Johnny, uh, on, a, on a metaphorical level, grew disil disillusioned with the company because it became a place where increasingly commerce dictated art, uh, where once it was a place where art led to commerce. And yeah, you call him uh, Johnny Ive. He is Sir Johnny Ive. He was knighted um, by the British royal family. It's quite an achievement for a, a Brit in the, uh, in the U.S. Your book seems at least to pit the post Steve, the after Steve succession struggle between uh, Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. Here we have um, them both featured in a New York Times photo looking at one of Ive's great inventions, the iPhone. Um, we think of Ive as the creative genius and, 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 and Cook as the accountant, the 
the guy who made the trains and continues to make the trains run on time at Apple. Is that a fair assessment or is it a little bit of a cliche? Look, it's it's reductive, but it's a useful it's a useful way to to get at the essence of what makes Apple so successful. It was this this perfect combination of people with incredibly strong left brain sensibilities like Johnny Ive and incredibly strong right brain sensibilities like Tim Cook. And Tim Cook was able to come in in 1998 when Apple was on the brink of bankruptcy and look at its supply chain and say, okay, this is a total mess. You're holding way too much inventory. You're losing tons of money. Let's refashion this thing. He flew to China. He, he, he built out this uh, masterful assembly network in China where hundreds of thousands of Chinese workers who, who, who make very little money could assemble Apple's product at a relatively low price and Apple could reap the profits. And that's been a huge, a huge reason that the company has been so successful and increased its market value by $2 trillion under, under Tim Cook. Trip, um, is the, the losing of the Apple soul, is that bound up in part with this increasing centrality of, of China as the metaphorical factory for the making of Apple products and its willingness, it seems at least, to compromise with the slave labor-like nature of much of the manufacturing in China. We've done a number of shows about the problems with manufacturing with products made in China. I, th I think that at the time that Tim Cook set up this supply chain, um, that was very much in vogue. Uh, and the pendulum has swung against that in the, in the public sphere and the court of public opinion, um, particularly as uh, there's been rising concern within the U.S. and in other countries about um, the hollowing out of the manufacturing base and the consequences of that, uh, both for workers who have less job opportunities or fewer job opportunities in the U.S., and for everyday consumers. We saw that particularly pronounced during the, the pandemic when you couldn't get masks and various products because you were dependent on China to make those and China shut down. Um, and that's gonna be something that's pressing and a pressing issue for, for Apple going forward. The book's hero, of course, is Johnny Ive. As I said, here we have a, a photo of him with Tim Cook. You suggest that he was, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, you suggest that he was at least implicitly in these big corporate battles pushed out of Apple. He chose to leave. He wasn't, of course, fired. How would you explain his departure? Did he lose a power str uh, struggle with Cook or did he just get sick of having to fight the accountants? It, it's an unspoken power struggle uh, between he and Cook, but more of what took place was that in the wake of Steve Jobs' death, Johnny Ive assumed a great deal more responsibility for product development and some of the creative aspects of the company. And in the course of that, he grew, he grew pretty tired to the point where after the watch was released, he went in and told his, uh, told his staff that he'd never been more tired during his two decades at that point at Apple. And he wanted to take a break. He went to, he went to Tim Cook and he said, I want to go part-time or leave. Tim Cook, fearing that if Johnny Ive walked out the door, it would uh, cause investors to sell shares and erase some of Apple's market cap, worked to try to keep Johnny Ive in the fold, came up with an arrangement where Johnny Ive could go part-time. 
And while Johnny Ive was part-time, that's when the company began to, to reorient itself more and more around Tim, Tim Cook's vision for what it could be. You mentioned in the book, or you argue that, and, and here we have a picture of Cook with the with the watch, with the Apple Watch. You mentioned that the watch was incredibly important to Ive, and that it fizzled a little bit. I mean, it's it's not a, a failed product, but it's not the next iPhone. It's not even the next iPad. Is that fair? Yeah, it was launched with a great deal of imperfection, and I, I've been asked. Why, why does the book spend so much time looking at the watch? Um, it's now been with us for seven years. It was it was yeah. first on sale in 2015. I got and my it, watch here. <laughs> and it, well, good. Um, and and I think you having a watch is a bit of a testament to what's yeah. hap- what's happened over time. Um, it's a people, nice product, but it's yeah. not a revolutionary product. Right. right. It's an extension of the iPhone, not a replacement for the iPhone, which is what it was what they aspired to make it be um, but what did i've you know in in retrospect if we if we got johnny i'm on this show which i think would be fairly un- unlikely what would his critique be of the watch what would he have liked it to be which it isn't he would have wished that upon release its functionality was superior to what it what its capabilities were on day one and namely, one of the one of the biggest dings and knocks on the watch when it was released was its battery life. Uh, if you'll recall, the the first the first iteration of the watch and the second as well to maintain battery life for the course of the day, it didn't tell time twenty four seven, and that's that's a difficult thing to do. You're introducing a watch, a timepiece, something that everyone associates with telling time and needs to tell time. And it only told time when you flicked your wrist towards your face and looked at it and, and the time glowed and told you, told you exactly what time it was. Um, so that, that would be the, the most fundamental flaw that the, the product had on release. And it's, it's part of the reason there's a scene in the book that, a, that an engineer went to, Jeff, uh, went to Jeff Williams, who was running the pro- project. He's the, the company's chief operating officer and said, Jeff, if you forgot your iPhone today, what would you do? And this is before they released it. And Jeff said, I'd go back and get my iPhone. Um, I like literally couldn't spend the day without it. And he, he says to Jeff, well, if you forgot your watch today, what would you do? He said, I'd get it when I got home. And he looked at Jeff Williams and said, well, that's why we can't release this product yet. And that was that was the conundrum Apple was dealing with at the time. They were They were feeling pressure from outside the company to release a new product and say to the world, we can make something after Steve Jobs. While at the same time, you know, not quite having it ready and fully baked for release. Here we have a, a picture of Steve Jobs in person and uh, Johnny Ive, uh, the virtual Johnny Ive at probably some iPad release. Uh, sorry, i uh, iPhone release. Uh, you note in your narrative um, that when Jobs came back to the company, uh, Ives might have been on the brink of being fired. How great a designer was or is Ive? Uh, clearly, Jobs had an enormous impact on him. Clearly, Jobs was intimately involved in the design of the iPhone and the iPad. If they were anyone's babies, they were his. So how would you assess Ive's real talent? I would, I would say that 
when you when you think about Ive's relationship with Jobs, it's hard not to put it in terms that perhaps your audience will appreciate. Um, in terms of a writer and an editor, um, it, it's almost like Thomas Wolfe and Look Homeward Angel. When that when that book was delivered, I think I can't remember how many pages it was, but it was enormous. And the editor went through and trimmed it way back and turned it into a real polished piece of literature and is credited with with you know having a huge contribution to Thomas Wolfe's success. Um, in many ways, that that was the jobs I've dynamic. Um, Jobs would give Ive a goal. I want to make a computer that is that is joyful. Um, for example, in, in the late nineties, this is this is at the outset yeah, of work. So hey, we have iMac. an image of Ive with the original colored um, uh, iMac and John Rubenstein, the business development guy or product development guy at uh, Apple. Right, and you'll see on the bottom of that, on the back side of that iMac, it's got a handle and. Nobody, I mean, you couldn't pick up that handle and move that computer. It's too heavy. And I was really insistent upon putting the handle on it. A lot of the engineers said, well, that's just an extra cost for an unnecessary feature. But I wanted to put it on there because he thought it would make the, the, uh, the computer more approachable, like something that I think in his words, something that people would want to touch and pet almost like a dog or something like that. And that resonated with with Jobs. So he looked at the engineers and said, "No, um, I'm siding with Johnny on this, and we're gonna we're gonna spend the extra money to incorporate that that detail." And both of them considered it a, a signature aspect of the reason that the design was so radically different from other computers at the time. Trip earlier today, I did an interview with Alice Sherwood. She has an interesting new book out, Authenticity. Reclaiming reality in a counterfeit culture. Nothing about Jobs or Johnny Ive in this, of course. But do you think that Ive's greatest skill is in the creation of products that appear and feel authentic, given our, and, and that's a tricky word, of course, but given our contemporary thirst, the contemporary consumer thirst for authenticity, if there is a tech product and company that seems authentic, it's Apple and its products. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a turn of phrase they, they use in and around Apple, and it's designing products with empathy. And I believe Lorraine Powell Jobs, um, Steve, Steve Jobs' widow, put Johnny Ive in this context when, when she spoke about him at his 50th birthday party, which is described and recounted in the book. And she just talked about how Johnny was able to design products uh, with with empathy so that when people pick them up and use them, it was almost in, innate how you would know how to use and handle the product. Um, I don't know if that speaks to the authenticity you're trying to get at, but I do think that's a fundamental aspect of, of Apple product design that, that has made it so uh, ubiquitous in the world. It's a remarkable story. We're talking with Trip Mickle, the author of After Steve, a very interesting new book about Apple after the death of Steve Jobs, how it's run, why it's run, whether it's lost its soul. I'm going to take a break, Trip, and afterwards I want to talk a little bit more about the power struggle, and I want to offer a defense of Steve, uh, of, of, I keep on calling him Steve Cook, Tim Cook, because I think there is a legitimate defense, and I want to see how you'll respond to that. So we'll take a 60-second break. And then we'll be back with Trip Mickle, the author of After Steve, the New York Times' new 
correspondent of Apple. So we're back in 60 seconds, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, In terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back with Trip Mickle, the author of After Steve, really interesting new book about Apple after the death of Steve Jobs, how it became, according to its subtitle, a, a trillion, it's a multi-trillion dollar company now, and lost its soul. Uh, Trip, to what extent, and, 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 and your book is defined by this power, this cultural, this political struggle between the designers headed by Johnny Ive and Tim Cook, the, the numbers guy, the operational guy. After Jobs, after Steve, was there a moment when, at least at Apple, the the inmates seemed to be running the asylum and, um, and uh, Ive's obsession with design won out and that was rather dangerous? Is there some truth to that? I'd actually argue that the opposite happens in some way. I mean, there was a there was a period where Tim Cook gave Johnny Ive a, a great deal of license, uh, especially on the development of the watch, which we discussed a few minutes ago, to pursue that project as he saw fit. In in, in doing so, um, Johnny Ive, in some ways, became his own worst enemy. Um, he embarked on this ambitious endeavor where the watch had to be in his mind something that could be personalized so that a form factor that looked the same on your wrist and my wrist could also be differentiated by the watch band of our choosing or the material of of the uh, the case that we that we selected perhaps you chose aluminum i would choose stainless steel and so what he does is he he goes and embarks on this endeavor and spins up all of these different um, lines of watch bands and cases 
and this is a multitude of the single iPhone that they made years before under Jobs. And in doing that, um, he, he needs the support of more engineers, more operations people who are in the, the design studio where he once had an unspoken rule, which was you don't talk about costs here. And as these people come into the design studio, which people on campus called the Holy of Holies, uh, you have this moment where all of a sudden costs start to become part of the conversation. The rules start to be broken and they are kind of like, um, you know, the money changers in the temple, if you will. And and so did did Tim Cook give Ive too long of a leash? Yeah, I think you could argue that in this case that. Apple became too ambitious and was making too many products at one time. And in many ways, Ives' pursuit of that became one of the burdens for him internally because he had a lot more, I don't know, conversations around costs and operational issues that he had once kept at arm's length. Ironically, that was the state of Apple before Steve Jobs joined for the second time. He came in and, and cut all the products. I bought um, one of the new 16-inch uh, MacBook Pros last year, and that product perhaps r reflects the reshaping of Apple in a, in a post-Johnny Ive world. Um, it was an uncompromising, the MacBook Pro was an uncompromising product under Ive. It didn't have any inputs. It was designed to be as slim, as aesthetically attractive as possible. It was a beautiful work of art. But it wasn't very functional. And these new computers, as so many of the other new products from Apple, seem a lot more functional. Um, do you think that's a reflection of the um, the resignation of Ive and the the the, the shift in, in in power within Apple itself? Yeah, it is. I, I, I'm going to draw like a, a a small line there. I mean, there there are two things that that have happened. One in 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 the post Ive era, the product marketing people at Apple who tend to canvas customers and listen to customers' concerns are more empowered when it comes to product features and, and product design. And so they're, they're influencing and directing that in a way that they, they weren't doing under the time period when Johnny Ive was still at the company. Now, that being said, my reporting didn't find that Johnny Ive was directly responsible for the number of ports and, and the touch bar and so on and so forth and the butterfly keyboard that a lot of people disdained. Um, but he was there setting a tone and driving this, this impulse to make things slimmer and sleeker. And that led engineers to want to fulfill those goals and led to the products that a lot of people, and at least in the, in the Mac, Macintosh laptop form factor, grew frustrated with. It's not just uh, Ive against um, Cook that you write about in the book. Uh, Scott Forstall is also another character in the book who, 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 who inhabits your narrative. Who was Forstall and why is he significant in this uh, post-Jobs Apple world? And why is his disappearance from Apple so significant? In many ways, Scott Forstall is, is kind of the one of the, the third uh, third great geniuses that Steve Jobs had on his team. I mean, if you think Tim Cook, Johnny Ive, Forstall was was the, the genius behind developing the iPhone software uh, that we all rely on, iOS. And 
Um, as a result, he had built a tremendous uh, team and a, a lot of a lot of power and clout inside the company. But he had this downfall that was somewhat Shakespearean in a sense. Um, it, it occurred because Apple embarked on an ambitious project to develop Maps, which was a total failure, as many people may recall. The book recounts how after its release, uh, people started to use it. And in Australia, for example, they punched in some directions and a couple of people wound up in, in the outback um, because maps just were not. I thought you were going to say they ended up in New Zealand. <laughs> That'd be hard. They'd need a boat as well. Um, but yeah, they, they wound up in the outback. And that was just because maps weren't, um, they didn't have the underlying data they needed to get people to where they needed to be. But the, the more interesting thing that my reporting found about Scott, who was ultimately fired, is that he was disliked by a lot of his, his peers uh, who were on the executive team at Apple, who, who made all the decisions about the direction Apple was going in. And he was also distrusted because he was perceived to be, by his peers, the only one who thought he could be CEO other than Tim Cook. So when Tim Cook fires him because of the maps, in, in part in the wake of the maps fiasco, he tells Scott, it's, it's not really about maps that, I, that I'm firing you. And this is detailed in the book. He says he, he leaves Scott and, and others around Scott with the distinct impression that it was because Scott was unable to collaborate and work with his peers and was disliked. And it's an open question. I, I'd love to pose it to Tim Cook, but how much of that was really about Tim Cook recognizing that this, that this figure, Scott Forstall, could have posed a threat to his own leadership of the company going forward. Yeah, and that description of Forstall could have equally been applied to, to Jobs when he ran the, country, the company. He was a notorious bully. I've spoken to many ex-Apple people who loathed the man who would have killed him if they could. So he, I think we have to be careful about, I don't think you do this in After Steve, but we can't canonize Jobs. I mean, he was a bully. He wasn't always honest. He was a, a obsessed with power. He had friends and enemies. So let's be careful. And 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 if anyone was the the logical successor to Jobs, it wasn't Ive. It wasn't Cook. It was Forstall. Yeah, in many ways. In fact, uh, when you when you say that about about Jobs himself, I'm I'm reminded of a, a recent conversation with somebody who worked extremely closely with him, who who called him like a borderline sociopath because he was so skilled at. Uh, I mean, he was he was such a tyrant on in in some instances, but then also so persuasive that he could he could look at you and tell you and tell the world after developing uh, a new CD capability for people to develop videos for the kids. Anyone who has kids can understand why this is important, and it just the way he said it, it just resonated with everybody. But for the people who worked with him, it it, it sent chills down their spine because. Behind the scenes, he was badgering them and yelling at them to, to get the product made on time. Yeah, I had Walter Isaacson on the show 10 years ago now talking about his wonderful book about um, Jobs and, and Isaacson, who was, I guess, in a way, a friend of Jobs. And certainly Lauren Powell Jobs uh, has encouraged him to write the book. Um, certainly he reflects that, and particularly in terms of his relations outside Apple with his family and his daughters. Um you note in the book, uh, uh, Trip, that um, the gods have become mortal in terms of Apple. But 
and, and, and Cook's running of the company. But isn't that appropriate? I mean, everything has changed so dramatically in tech. We have all these antitrust investigations. We have the meltdown of um, f- Facebook. We have Jeff Bezos's flight from Amazon. The only way Apple could have succeeded and has succeeded in the modern world is by becoming mortal. And there's no better mortal leader of a company than Tim Cook with his honesty, his relative decency, his ability to negotiate Washington, D.C. Isn't that fair? I I think that's fair. in, In working on the book, one of the things that interested me was a lot of people thought that the company would have would have floundered in this decade under jobs because he wouldn't have been able to as tactfully and diplomatically navigate some of the issues that it I mean he would have been Musk at yeah. best and at worst he would have been Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah. And 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 whereas Tim Cook is he's been very astute in how he's he's walked through the maze of issues that they've they've had to get through at Apple. Um, you know, one of the things that has been, um, I've enjoyed hearing from some people who have been early readers of the book that they found themselves because the book toggles between an Ive chapter and a cook chapter. And they found themselves when they were in an Ive chapter, feeling very sympathetic for Johnny, when they were in a cook chapter, finding themselves feeling very sympathetic for cook. And I think that speaks to the left brain and the right brain that's within all of us. I mean, these, these, these two figures are kind of uber examples of of the strengths that we each have um and they lean further into those the left brain and the right brain than probably any of us ever would but we can each see a little glimpse of ourselves and and how they think through things and and behave and act and what they aspire to do but again in defense of tim cook i mean he appreciates design he's not someone who's turned apple into uh, into Dell or Microsoft. I mean, he, it, it's not as if he's clamped down on the centrality of design. He seems to still respect and and the brand as 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 Jobs built it. Isn't that fair? He he appreciates the uh, the importance of Apple's leadership in design to its brand image, and and he understands and has done everything he can to preserve Apple's brand because it's so integral to their ability to charge more than $1,000 for an iPhone. So yes, like he's been a great steward for that. He still believes in that. He wants that identity preserved. I think, I think the book, um, in its focus on on Tim is less about less le- seeks less to emphasize his uh, his work in design and more his strengths, which are in operations and really, as you you highlighted, navigating tricky issues like Donald Trump being president and waging a, a trade and tariff war on on China, which is the exporter of all Apple's products to the U.S. But isn't there something? And maybe I'm buying into the myth here. Something essentially decent about Cook. When I went to the Apple front page today, there's a big ad for UNICEF. Of course, Apple is promoting itself in a sense, but you would never find that on Facebook or on Amazon for that matter. Um, Cook's public acknowledgement of his own sexuality is important. He does, again, I'm not defending the guy. I understand that there are some significant problems in terms of China, but Compared to the other CEOs of Silicon Valley, there is something decent about him. I mean, you 
brought up, you, you mentioned the word Uber. When you compare Cook to Travis Kalanick, not that he's around Uber anymore, I mean, it's a very vivid contrast. And if we want to find a model for a, a relatively decent, responsible, accountable tech CEO, it's 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 Tim Cook, isn't it? He he certainly is incredibly principled, um, and and to your point, he is he has sought to where where Jobs sought to define Apple as this great product leader and being all about product. Tim has sought sought to push Apple further and and put his own stamp on it by co-opting a, a turn of phrase that some marketers brought in for an ad campaign that's highlighted in the book, which is Apple needs to, quote, leave the world better than we found it. And Tim has really tried to make that part of his ethos. He's added capability or he's added things at Apple like corporate uh, matching donations to nonprofits. He's taken strong stands on privacy. And, um, you know, to your point, he's he's been fairly principled in, in terms of uh, lashing out against uh, against some of his tech peers, such as Mark Zuckerberg. For, right. for I, their I think that when, when historians look back at this period, it's his decision to essentially not so much wage war on Zuckerberg or even Facebook, but the business model of Zuckerberg and Facebook, which is essentially what Shoshana Zuboff describes as surveillance capitalism. We give you our product for free. We take your data and we sell it to advertisers. That's not the Apple model. It never will be, although they are more and more in the software business. And Cook has been very explicit in rejecting um, the, uh, the the Facebook model. And indeed, it's changes in their advertising and other software features, which resulted in the collapse of Facebook share prices earlier this year. Right, right. I, th I think you're making a great point. Um, I think it's also important to remember the Tim Cook's not giving away products for free. Um, there's a huge swath of well, why should he? <laughs> but I my, mean... my 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 point being, there's a huge swath of consumers that can't afford high priced iPhones, and so are those people just you know uh, left to to being subject to Google and Facebook and surveillance capitalism or you know, if if Tim Cook really does believe in that, like, does he does he own or have some responsibility to develop a lower priced iPhone type product? They are. I that, mean, I don't want to reach re reach them. You know, right? I don't want to sound too much like a an Apple fanboy, which right. I'm not. But they have brought the price down of Apple phones. The SE is mm -hmm. relatively affordable, and the problem with giving this stuff away for free, as Facebook and Google do is it's never free. We pay with our own data. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Apple is, you know, under Tim has come out and tried to swing against with its app tracking transparency measures. And the idea that now, whenever you open a new app on your phone, you get to approve whether or not that app has the ability to track you um, at all times or occasionally or never. So have I convinced you, Trip? Uh, <laughs> has Apple regained its soul in this forty-minute conversation? I don't. I don't. I don't know that that's as as we started at the outset. That that was what I was thinking to emphasize when when it came to its soul. I think 
I think that there is soulfulness to the aspects that you're talking about at Apple. But I, I also think that one thing that you and I didn't delve into, that it may be the most urgent and pressing challenge they face, is, is what they're going to have to do about their dependency on China, particularly as geopolitical tensions continue to rise worldwide. Maybe that might be the subject of another book. Um, After Steve is a, is, is a wonderful account of Apple in the post-Steve Jobs age. What's next for Apple, um, Trip? You mentioned dealing with China. What about this Apple car that seems inevitably on the horizon? One wonders when. Uh, but is this the product that could make or break the company in the 2020s? I think it's critical to to Apple that that product is brought forward. Um, the company has reached a point where it's beyond <laughs> beyond a saturation level in the consumer electronics world. Uh, it, it recruits something above 80% of all profit from smartphone. Uh, and so it's got to go beyond that to find new revenue and meet the demands of Wall Street, which, you know, is just forever banging the table and saying, we want growth, we want growth, we want growth. And the, you know, multi-trillion dollar auto industry is one area that Apple can mine in order to deliver that growth. And that will be the next big fight. Tim Cook against Elon Musk. I wonder who's going to win that one. I'm sure a trip you will cover that in your New York Times new beat, as well as perhaps future books. Very interesting new book. Uh, after Steve, how Apple became a trillion dollar company and lost its soul. I'm not convinced, but it's an important book, um, which I think treats uh, uh, Apple, a uh, post Steve Jobs uh, Apple in an interesting narrative. What else should people be reading, uh, Trip, uh, in early May, in addition to your new book, After Steve? Any books on your bedside table? Uh, I'll, I'll... One book that I just finished that I thoroughly enjoyed and would highly recommend is Red Carpet by Eric Schwartzel. Yeah, uh, Eric was on the, our show, actually, talking about China and tech and entertainment. It's an interesting book. Yeah, no, it's a great look. At and a Wall the, Street Journal uh, correspondent, as you were. Right, right. Uh, the other ones uh, that I've picked up lately include John Markoff's book, which you... Yeah, John was you, on the show, too. Yeah, John on recently. And um, and my, my former colleague at the Wall Street Journal, uh, Kirsten Grind's book on Tony Shea, happy at any cost. Yeah, we had that one too. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? Wow. Yeah, you're, and that was a really good one. I mean, yeah. talk about a sad character, Tony Shea, the the unhappiest man selling happiness uh, in the world. Well, Trip Mickle, uh, congratulations again on a marvelous new book, After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. Finally, Trip, in, uh, and, and this is a leading question, I guess, to you, in, in, in early May 2022. Who runs the world, Trip Mickle? Who's in charge? Xi Jinping, in my opinion. Um, I think uh, his moves to consolidate power in China, uh, his, I guess, lockdown on China uh, and, and kind of no tolerance for COVID policy and, and the implications that has for the ability to ship products around the world that are made in China. All of that is is kind of rippling through the entire system, not not to mention his tacit unspoken support of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as consequences for everyone. 